Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, emotion regulation, resilience. I'm still talking uh, about the multifaceted topic of trauma. I do want to move on. We're in the summertime. There's lots of other things that I want to move on to. And I just know there's so much to talk about when it comes to trauma. I could dedicate my whole podcast just to trauma alone. I will be coming back to trauma in the future and things like intergenerational trauma. Um, But before I do move on to different things, I want to shine a bit of a spotlight on the significance of early experiences. Um, And then, like I said, in the future, I'll talk about intergenerational trauma. But those early experiences, even prenatal ones, and I think sometimes we don't think about prenatal experiences, it really does have a profound effect on brain development and our attachment patterns. And attachment, of course, I've talked a lot about, relates a lot in, in how we um, are able to be in relationship when it comes to trauma, but creating that sense of safety and trust. And when we consider trauma, we can't overlook the influence of, like I said, even prenatal experiences on the developing child. And, you know, we're looking at the emotions and the experiences of the mother during pregnancy that can directly shape the environment in which the baby's brain develops. So it's important to recognize things like stress hormones, right? That the adrenaline and the cortisol that can pass through the placenta and it can impact the baby's physiological and emotional well-being. And we often hear about the critical importance of earlier intervention when we're addressing trauma, but it's critical to also acknowledge that this intervention should really begin even in the prenatal stage if we are seeing potential prenatal trauma. There's uh, lots of researchers and advocates who are actively promoting um, research and studying you know, around trauma-informed prenatal care. This approach goes beyond addressing the physical aspects of pregnancy, which is often what we focus focus a lot on, and it really emphasizes the emotional well-being of expectant mothers. So we're, we're recognizing and addressing any trauma in their history. That's going to be really important. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but recognizing the detachment and emotional numbness that we might see in pregnant women who've experienced trauma. That's the first step in making sure we're building a secure sort of attachment so we can start actively working towards optimizing brain development and fostering healing right before the baby's even born. So a great example of this when we start watching for signs is when you've got a woman who's not really getting excited if she feels the baby kick, right? There should be so much excitement and so much joy and connection, but we're not seeing that emotional connection or any big emotional reaction. That's a big red flag that we can start looking at. Hmm. Is there some emotional detachment and numbness going on here? Cause that can affect the baby. So first is identifying these women. That's first and foremost, and then ensuring we're creating that safe, supportive environment for that mother who has experienced trauma or the mother-to-be who's experienced trauma. And then we're going to be providing tailored interventions, building secure attachments, promoting that optimal brain development during pregnancy. It, It can also involve incorporating things like mindfulness, relaxation techniques, encouraging pregnant women to engage in activities that promote their self-care their stress management, you know, looking at things like prenatal yoga or guided meditation or, you know, mindfulness activities. 
all of those can help them connect with their own emotions and starting to work on, we want to work on building that, that emotional tolerance and, and then making sure we're creating that nurturing environment for them and their developing baby. Uh, providing education and resources about trauma-informed parenting practices that can really empower these women to develop healthy attachment relationships with their infants when they're born. And so that could include teaching them about the importance of responsiveness to their babies, attuned caregiving, establishing those really important routines, you know, for around sleeping and feeding, creating a really nurturing environment, and making sure we're promoting that sort of emotion regulation and that bonding those are so important that's the the relationship is such a key piece and so focusing on that relationship when the baby's born is critical because otherwise you know the brain areas for things like emotion regulation they just don't come online and that can be really detrimental over time and so it's focusing on building just good enough parenting practices. It's not about perfection. That's just going to cause more problems for any of us. It's going to cause a problem. It's good enough uh, parenting. And so it's caring, addressing their kiddos' needs. So we want to make sure that we have a really sort of well-rounded approach. So collaborating, coordinating amongst other healthcare providers, any therapists that might be involved, any support networks that's available to this woman. That's all really important to have comprehensive care to make sure that these, you know, mothers-to-be really receive the support that they need throughout their pregnancy journey and to lay the foundation for healthy attachment and well-being for both mother and the child. Also significant is when kiddos don't have the role models around them right? So role models, their parents or caregivers who don't have the self-awareness of their own emotions and who can't regulate their emotions effectively can also be problematic for the developing brain and, you know, developing those secure attachments. So the absence of modeling of emotion regulation and that nurturing care during childhood can create a lot of um, vulnerabilities to trauma, and it can really inhibit the resilience. This is going back to, you know, when I'm going back to the prenatal things, there's a researcher um, who was at the Harvard Medical School System, Karen um, Karen Lyons-Ruth, I think her name is. She investigated attachment and trauma recovery She was following at-risk kiddos whose mothers had faced challenges like substance abuse or imprisonment, for example. So they had their own trauma. And so, you know, the assumption was they're not really strong role models. So they were having their own challenges with being able to be nurturing, to, to establish secure attached relationships, to regulate their own emotions. So, of course, you know, their mothers didn't have great role models themselves. And so that we can see that perpetuated down. And this researcher, she actually asked pregnant women, how much do you remember about your own childhood? How much did you actually have a chance to talk about your own feelings, to process those things? And she saw their responses could predict the form of attachment relationship they were going to have with their unborn child. Right. And so before they were two, she could predict what that attachment style was going to look like by two. She could also predict based on their responses, i.e., I didn't have a good role model, i.e., I never talked about my emotions and couldn't process them. 
didn't, wasn't able to learn to regulate my emotions. So could, you know, predict those attachment bonds, but could also predict the likelihood that their kiddo was going to be in trouble, like, you know, having to go to the principal's office in early elementary and then predicting as adults if they would end up in jail. So we can see this clear prediction just from our own childhood experiences. And so we see this perpetuation of trauma. And again, I'm not going to go into intergenerational trauma now in the future i will but that's another piece as well a lot of people in their have had these early childhood experiences they don't know how to regulate they don't know how to show care and nurturing they never received it and so we see this perpetuation of trauma so this researcher so karen followed these kiddos well into adulthood and in her work she really highlighted the importance of modeling emotional care teaching parents how to provide emotional support. And to be quite honest, that's the crux of all of the work that I do in in pretty much everything that I work on, whether there's trauma or not. But we need to make sure we've got that early support because without that early support and that early care and emotional sort of nurturing, it can be really detrimental to a kiddo's ability to regulate their own emotions and to form secure attachments. Like I said, I'll talk about intergenerational trauma, um, but and that's kind of where I was heading with all of this. But I think there's a lot here to really dig into more and, and to focus on supporting kiddos who've had, you know, traumatic early experiences just a little bit more. Now, in a previous episode, I was talking uh, about specific strategies depending on attachment style. Today is additional information as we dive into a little bit more, you know, dive a little further into this. So when kiddos don't have that consistent supportive caregiver or caregivers, at least one who demonstrates healthy emotion regulation, who, you know, provides that nurturing care, then they might struggle to develop the skills to manage their own emotions and to cope with stress. And that can leave them even more susceptible in the future, you know, experiencing a trauma response and all of the negative effects that come with the traumatic response and, and, and it's a good predictor, right? When two kiddos face the exact same situation that could be potentially traumatic, kiddos with that attachment and those strong role models, they're less likely to have a traumatic response. It was, you know, an unfortunate event, but it's not affecting them the same way trauma does. But these kiddos are at risk when they do have that prenatal experiences. And so, this is why we're going to build the key skills of emotion regulation, right? And and I will be having, once we get into the fall, we'll be having a skill building series where I, and emotion regulation is going to be a huge one that I talk about. But emotion regulation is really important here. So it's their ability to understand what's going on, what emotions are coming up and knowing how to manage those those emotions in a really healthy and adaptive way. If they don't have that modeling for emotion regulation, they're going to have a way harder time being able to identify their emotions, express their emotions, manage those emotions in a healthy way, in helpful ways. Oftentimes it can come out behaviorally, right? Or withdraw completely. So a lot of them experience these really intense emotional reactions and they're so emotionally reactive, they can't control their impulses, they have a hard time concentrating and they can't self-soothe. Without that proper emotion regulation skills, they're very vulnerable to, like I said, you know, any impact of traumatic events and not have 
the right amount of resources to cope effectively, even with everyday demands. They're also more vulnerable to trauma if they don't have a protective sense of safety, right? They don't have the trust in the relationship. They don't have that emotional support that comes with secure attachments. And so not only are they more vulnerable, they're less likely to seek support in the first place if they're distressed because they don't have that trusting relationship or know that that I can go to this person and actually get helpful feedback. Those early role models for emotion regulation and that early nurturing, that, that nurturing care, it plays a critical role in fostering resilience and, and developing those healthy coping mechanisms, right? So children who've experienced a lack of that emotional modeling often don't have the chance, like I said, not only to learn coping coping strategies, but even just navigating challenging situations and knowing, hey, I have the skills to do this. That's usually where shutdown comes in. It's just the belief that I can't handle it. So they don't have any experiences to show them that they do. And that's why we see the aggressive acting out behaviors or the withdrawal, or as they get older, a lot of self-destructive behaviors. And that's just increasing their vulnerability to trauma any further. And so we just see this vicious cycle. Um, we also see that this you know, experience of, um, you know, not having positive role models, it can create a cycle of re-victimization. So if kiddos have not learned healthy boundaries and they don't know what a healthy relationship and a healthy, nurturing, trusting, caring relationship is, you know, and they don't have self-care strategies, they might unknowingly attract relationships and situations that mirror their early experiences of neglect and abuse. They don't know any different. And so we see this cycle of re-victimization that can perpetuate, again, their vulnerability to trauma and make it way more challenging to break free from these negative patterns. So we can see just how important early intervention is so that we can prevent, you know, this cycle and re-victimization and just perpetuating it, right? And we can mitigate all of these vulnerabilities to trauma. We can enhance kiddos' ability to cope with stress, to regulate their emotions, reduce their susceptibility to trauma in the future. All of that's really important. Now, I've already talked about intervention. So focusing on, you know, really it's providing children with supportive relationships in safe environments, opportunities for healing. And so that's really important. Oftentimes kiddos need uh, a trauma-informed approach, you know, whether it's in therapy or even school and really supportive school environments, having mentoring programs, community resources that can promote, you know, healthy emotional development and resilience. Secure attachment, it's really the foundation for trauma recovery. And I focus so much on that, right? And it's trauma recovery and just emotional well-being. I want to quickly just talk about the immense complexity of the relationship. Um, and especially for you out there who are therapists or who are helping professionals, that therapeutic relationship is so complex, especially when we're looking at trauma recovery. Um, and so I'm just going to focus on that for a little bit. Still, even if you're not a mental health professional, it's still something important for you to think about in your interactions if you've got a child who's had tra traumatic experiences. As they get older, trauma survivors often carry these deep-seated expectations based on their past um, past experiences and expectations. So they're anticipating being hurt. They're anticipating, you know, 
distrust in relationships. They're anticipating the repetition of the pain that they've already endured. So another reason why early intervention is so important is ensuring we are not perpetuating any challenges for sure, but we're helping, you know, even teens and adults, we got to navigate these expectations and we have to really create that space space for healing that they might not have had before, right? So experiencing that opportunity for safety in that space. And so that requires a very thoughtful, sensitive, empathetic um developmentally appropriate approach where we're exploring some of their fears, some of their worries, some of their vulnerabilities that they might bring to the table. And so building that safe and trusting relationship is our very first and primary focus. So even if you're an educator or even just a parent, you know, like, let's look at that. Do we have that safe and trusting relationship? We got to make sure we're creating a very safe space. That involves in our interaction, showing genuine care, actively listening for their to their experiences, validating their perspective, validating their emotions. Even if to us, it's not a big deal. We want to validate that. We're demonstrating empathy. We're demonstrating understanding. This can take a lot of time. It's not just a one and done, but it's really critical. We don't do anything else and move on until we've established that, that really trusting relationship to help kiddos feel secure to feel comfortable in expressing their thoughts and emotions or whatever else comes out. And that also includes our environment. If we're throwing them into a school, into a classroom where they don't feel safe, it doesn't matter what our work is and what our relationship is like. We need to make sure that they feel safe everywhere. Um, Having developmentally appropriate education, that can be important as well. So for sure, my tweens and teens, I I help them understand how those early life experiences can shape current day beliefs and behaviors. So I'm like, of course you feel this way. Of course this is happening. That makes sense given all of these experiences. We want to use really simple and concrete language that they can understand So we're going to explain concepts like trauma and attachment and emotion regulation. And even for little kids, you know, we can, it's really important to teach that. And we can do that with really simple and concrete language. So for example, with trauma, you know, I might say something like sometimes, you know, when something scary or really difficult happens to us, it can leave a mark on our hearts. It can leave a a a mark on our minds and our thoughts. And this is called trauma. So imagine if you had a really big scare, like being in a really big, scary car accident or seeing something really scary, that experience, it can stay with us. And sometimes it might make us feel scared or, or feel really upset or even angry, even way after it's over, right? So that's an example of what we could use there for attachment. I might say something like, you know, attachment is the special bond that we form with the people who are important to us, who take care of us, right? So like our parents or grandparents or whoever's important in that kiddo's life. It's like having sort of the safety net of love and support. And when we have a strong attachment, we feel safe. We feel secure because we know that we're loved right? And that we know that those people are going to be there for us when we need them, no matter what. It helps us to trust and to feel connected to other people. So that's the way I would sort of explain that. And then when it comes to something like emotion regulation, you know, that's understanding and managing our feelings in a really healthy way. It's like having our toolbox of strategies to help us 
recognize how I'm feeling and to manage that and to self-soothe and to feel better even when we're upset. So even things like, you know, counting to 10 when we're angry, any strategy that we can use for emotion regulation, right? It's about finding ways to manage our emotions so that they don't overwhelm us. And then when putting all of these things together, explaining the effect of trauma on attachment and the importance of regulating emotions, you could say something like, you know, I wanted to talk to you about something important. Sometimes when something scary or really tough happens to us, it can make us feel different inside. And that's called trauma. It can affect how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about others. One important thing that can happen is that it can make it harder for us to feel close and connected to the people we care about, like our family and our friends. But guess what? It's not your fault. You're not alone. This makes sense, right? So we want to kind of normalize that. And then I would go on about how our brain and our hearts, you know, they're they're like superpowers that can help us feel emotions. Sometimes when we've been through something really hard, our emotions can feel really big and it, they can feel like they're so overwhelming and hard to handle. It's, it's like they get stuck or they get mixed up inside. I often talk about this big tangle of emotions. It's really hard. We get stuck up in there. But the good news is... We have the power to help our emotions feel better and more balanced. And so just like super ha- superheroes, we have special tools as well to help, you know, to help with our emotions. Now, one of the most important tools is learning how to regulate our emotions. That means finding ways to, to calm down or, or just to stay present when we're feeling upset or when we're feeling overwhelmed. It's like having a secret power to help us feel more in control. That's what that is. And we might need to experiment with different things that can help us manage. I don't know what's going to work for you. Maybe it's going for a walk, going to the park, going on a swing, identifying how you're feeling. You know, these can help our emotions feel more balanced and calm, or at least that we have more control over them. Now, it's going to be hard, especially at first, right? And so lots of us need someone to help us work through these, to understand and to practice working through our feelings. So even though things can happen when we learn more, we do have the power to heal and to feel better. We can build stronger connections with the people we love by understanding our emotions and learning how to take care of ourselves. And we have people who love us and who are going to help us every step of the way. So that's just a really basic example. But it's really important to adapt that language and all of the concepts based on the kiddo's developmental level and what their understanding of language is. Using visual supports can be really helpful. Using stories, role-playing, just to help make the concepts more relatable and understandable is important. We can encourage them to ask questions. We can provide reassurance that it's okay to not understand everything right away and that this is going to be an ongoing conversation. That's important when we talk about this. It's also really important to emphasize that the child is not to blame, right? And that's why the validation comes in where we're validating their emotions and experiences. So yes, of course you feel this way. Those emotions are valid. They totally make sense, right? It's natural to have certain expectations based on past experiences. If you thought someone who was supposed to protect you actually hurt you, it makes sense now that you're worried about people that you think are supposed to protect you are going to hurt you. It makes sense that you're behaving in a certain way. That validation is so important just to help build their self-esteem, their self-awareness, their sense of acceptance and belonging and connection. 
We also want to make sure we're supporting kiddos and exploring all of their thoughts and feelings and expectations through as much self-reflection as we can. Sometimes through creative outlets can be helpful right? However is best for them to express themselves, we want to find that outlet. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's drawing. Maybe it's role-playing. Maybe it's talking. I don't know. We got to experiment. But but being able to express it is really important. It helps them gain insight into their experiences. It helps them identify their patterns. It helps them express their emotions in a safe and non-judgmental place where we want to make sure, you know, we want to make sure we're focusing that. We obviously need to, to focus on teaching kiddos developmentally appropriate coping skills as, as well, in addition to the emotion regulation. I mean, that's all of that. So we're managing those challenging emotions. I do use resilience build, building activities. Um, I do use some grounding activities to help them regulate their emotions and to create a sense of safety within themselves as well. Uh, we also want to build uh, healthy boundaries and assertiveness. It's really important to help kiddos understand what their rights are, right? And the importance of setting boundaries in relationships. I often work towards helping them express their needs, express their preferences while respecting others' boundaries as well. And so empowering them to assert themselves, that can really help reshape their expectations and promote those healthy relationships. And of course, I've said it once. I've said it a million times. I've already said it here even a couple of times. We want to make sure we're fostering those positive relationships and support systems with trusted adults who can provide consistent support and guidance. That's so important. And of course, environments that promote healthy attachment and positive interactions to counterbalance any negative experiences. So we want to engage families and caregivers and educators and coaches, whoever is important in that kiddo's life in the healing process too, if we can. This is where the resources and psychoeducation and strategies to support the kiddo's journey becomes really important. And we're, we're also collaborating with families and these other important adults to create that consistent and nurturing environment that reinforces positive expectations and promotes healing. Now, I know this might sound obvious, but it's important to just set that reminder that in all of this work, we are definitely taking a trauma-informed approach. And so we're, we're prioritizing safety, choice, collaboration, and empowerment to create a safe and trusting environment for that healing. So in doing this, we're creating predictability. We're establishing clear boundaries. We're honoring kiddos' autonomy to create that sense of safety and trust as well. And with prioritizing safety, we got to set up a structured environment with clear boundaries and expectations, which, you know, it, it, it can depend from environment and from kiddo. But, you know, generally it would be around things like respect and personal space, even appropriate behavior if needed. You want to make sure the physical environment is safe and secure. So that includes, you know, um, identifying any potential triggers or removing or minimizing them whenever whenever we can, initially at least. Some triggers could be um, us getting too close or smiling too wide, right? So we really need to collaborate with kiddos to see what they need because that can be really disconcerting. And I think I've shared an example where I just got a little too close. I leaned in. I, I didn't give a forewarning that I was leaning in just slightly. It wasn't even necessarily getting closer to the kiddo. I just wanted to see how they were progressing on their work. And that was enough to trigger a traumatic response. So we got to look at what are some of those triggers. Okay. 
And, and then that leads to the need to ensure we're creating that supportive, non-judgmental space where they actually feel comfortable expressing their emotions and not feeling embarrassed or this is, you know, dumb or anything like that. And, and that we're going to love them no matter what they say. We also want to make sure we're giving lots of opportunities for autonomy. So we're allowing kiddos to have a sense of control by offering choices within appropriate limits, of course. So for example, letting them decide on what activities they want to do or tasks or topics that we're going to chat about, you know, whenever possible, we want to take their preferences and interests into consideration whenever we're planning activities or any interventions that we're doing. This shows that their opinions and their input are really valuable and we really want to hear them. We also want to make sure we're collaborating all the way through, right? We want to help them in their decision-making about their treatment or activities that we're going to do. You know, all of that's going to be really important. So collaborative decision-making really empowers them and promotes a sense of ownership. We also want to do lots of check-ins with them to understand, are we still addressing your needs and your concerns and your preferences and, and not making you uncomfortable? And then we're going to make adjustments based on their feedback whenever appropriate. And I love, I'm always reinforcing when a kiddo's like, hey, I hated last time when we did this or when you did this. Or if they say, can you just move back? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for telling me. I wouldn't have known otherwise. And so I moved back. And with empowerment, this is where we can really encourage self-expression, right? We give them the chance to express themselves however feels most comfortable for themselves and to process their experiences and regain a sense of control and saying, hey, I do have a voice that matters. I do have something important to say that people are going to listen and are going to respect what I have to say. So teaching them those skills like coping skills, it also fuels empowerment as well. When we set um, predictability and, and establish clear boundaries and we're honoring kiddos autonomy, we're really helping create that feelings of, of safety and support and empowerment. Everyone's unique though. So we got to be attentive to everyone's individual needs and we're going to adapt our approach accordingly. You know, this is really just a big, broad overview. I think it's a lot of it is, you know, it all makes sense, but it's a really good reminder right? And, and it takes time. It really takes time to create that safe space. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of empathy. It takes commitment that we are willing to take the time and do the necessary changes to create change for this kiddo. Now, before I sign off today, I do want to say that sometimes we get so caught up in the trauma and we're doing all of this busy work over here, worrying about, you know, disrupted attachments. We're focusing on building new attachments and we're doing all of these interventions that we forget sometimes to zoom out and consider the bigger picture around this kiddo, right? We might miss any exceptions, Exceptions where we can see kids' resilience, and maybe they already have some attachment relationships that we can just sort of capitalize on. So sometimes they're already out there, right? Or at least opportunities for creating healthy, connected, loving, bonded relationships, sometimes in places we might not even expect it. So, you know, I think that that's really important. I often look at 
you know, doing almost a mind map of all the different people in a kiddo's life. And so where we can start looking at where are some positive relationships and positive energies already happening? We want to nurture those relationships and bolster other supportive relationships with trusted adults too. So even if we might be working, you know, with caregivers, I bet there's other people in their life who offer empathy and understanding and validation and unconditional positive regard. No matter what the child says or does, they're still loved and accepted. And that's so key. And I think that that's really important that we focus on. Maybe there are some other things that that we can focus on. So looking at that bigger picture. So this is really a broad overview. I just wanted to make sure I address those early experiences and even the prenatal experiences just so that we aren't creating this perpetuation of re-victimization and, and, and trauma. And then also focusing on... I just wanted to re-highlight the importance of the relationship and the safe environment. So really, that's that's key. I will leave it there for today. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited as we move on. We're going to be looking at different skills that kiddos need just to build their resilience and emotion regulation and all of those kinds of things. But I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and I look forward to seeing you next time.